0: Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised him the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Well, the key word in our text there is endurance. You saw it three times there. You'll see it again in verse 7. Uh, it is one of the themes of Hebrews of the book, and that is that we should endure that we should keep going, that we should persevere, and in light of the persecution that they experienced in light of the suffering that they experienced in light of the temptation in light of all the things that were happening in the Roman world at this time, the persecution against Christians uh, in this first century, in light of all of that, the temptation was very real for them to go backwards, for them to backslide, for them to turn backward into the life that they were used to. And for these Hebrews, that was Judaism. And uh, and so the author of Hebrews, his exhortation for them is keep going, endure, persist by faith. Don't go backwards. Jesus is superior. He's superior in every way to everything that you could ever turn back to. And so in context of Hebrews 11, which we read about 16 different uh, Old Testament saints who walked by faith and who persisted by faith, the author here says, therefore, we should endure. Endurance is a funny thing. Uh, I learned this, well, when I turned 25, something terrible happened to me. Uh, my metabolism just said, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to work anymore. He clocked out, and uh, even though I had been uh, on sports teams all my life and and I was able to eat all I wanted. Uh, something horrible happened when my metabolism checked out and uh, and i just I just got real fat <laughs> I got real fat and i wasn 't working out as much and uh, and i 'll never forget i didn 't really know um, uh, i was I was still wearing size thirty two uh, jeans like I had for a while but but I should have been in, like, size 40. I was just big, and uh, no one told me that, you know, uh, well, actually, one guy told me. He was an 85-year-old man named Herman Reese, and, uh, and one day after the service, I had done the announcements, and I had, I had sat down, and, and at the end of it, Herman said, uh, listen, fella, you're fat. <laughs> just like that. Uh, Herman said it just like that, and and I looked at this older guy, and uh, and I could I was shocked by his you know his uh, forthright sort of uh, in my face kind of uh, kind of way to confront me. And he said, I, you know, I don't want to I don't want to hurt your feelings or anything, uh, but you're you it just it demonstrates a lack of self control, and it demonstrates you know a lack of discipline. and 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 he was right, and uh, and so I I took Herman's words to heart. And um, and I found this program called Thirty for Thirty, and it was a thing where you um, for thirty days you jog and walk for thirty minutes. And the program went that I would walk for five minutes for the first five minutes, and then for the next fifteen minutes I would jog till I was tired, and then I would walk till I'd recovered. Doing that off and on, and for fifteen minutes, and then the last ten minutes I would walk. And this was like my beginner path. And so you would see me if it was, uh, if it was 1145 at night for 30 days, I, I would just tell Julie, I got to go and I'm going to go out there and, and I would r- do this routine. And for 30 days I did that until, uh, I, I found myself by the 20th day or so I was able to jog the entire time. And, and, I found that I felt better about myself, and I, I started to lose a little bit of weight, and, and so a friend of mine named Craig, uh, he he and I decided to train for a 5K, and it was ugly. We set a date six months out, and we just lumbered you know, down the road, and we tried to get through this, um, and, and a 5K is, is not very long. It's just a little over three miles, but but for someone like me who'd never done a road race, it was it was a long thing. But after we did a few of these 5Ks, we started to uh, to do some 10Ks, and then Craig said, let's try a triathlon. I said, you're out of your mind. I think, uh, if you don't know, Craig, that, that has to do with not just running, but also swimming, and also biking. And uh, it's been uh, painful enough and torturous enough for me just to jog every day, but now to try this. And so Craig and I did it for a year. We tried a sprint triathlon, and we did another sprint triathlon, then we did another one. And the key word was sprint. The distance was short. A sprint triathlon is a half-mile swim, a 12-mile bike ride, and a, a three-mile run. Uh, and after a while, we were able to do those things. But then Craig got the idea that we would try an Olympic triathlon <laughs> in open water, uh, which is a one-mile swim, a 25-mile bike ride, and a 6.2-mile run. And somewhere in the middle of this lake in northern Oklahoma, with wind and waves, somewhere in the middle of that swim, I just thought, I can't, there's no way I can do this. I literally got passed by every person, and I was the last one in the water. When I got to the exit point out of the lake, Uh, I found that my bike was the only bike Uh, I had borrowed this busted old steel Peugeot bike from the 80s or from the 70s, and everybody else had these amazing cone helmets and uh, super aerodynamic bikes, and I was just, you know, clipped on pedals, and I was just trying to do my best, and I really suffered through this thing. And what I found was that anyone can get through a sprint. I mean, you can just kind of muscle it up and get through this sprint. But, but when it came to this Olympic triathlon, I needed endurance. Uh, speed wasn't my friend. Pace would have been my friend. Uh, pace would have been I- even more critical. Uh, endurance is critical. And the author of Hebrews has encouraged them, this audience, that endurance is critical. Pace is critical. It's not how you start the Christian life, it's how you finish. And you've seen people who gave their life to Jesus and they made an immediate impact. They were excited about Jesus. They read scripture, they read books, they went to all the conferences and they they went to all the things. They were were busy in the Christian life, but uh, when trials hit and when suffering comes and when difficulties happen... Many people fade away, and you've seen this in your Christian life. You've seen it in others' lives, is that it's not how you start the Christian life. It's how you finish, and endurance is critical for that, and the author of Hebrews wants them to endure in light of persecutions and trials and suffering, in light of their temptation to go backward, in light of all the difficult things that were happening to them, he wants them to persist by faith to keep going, to endure. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint, and we must run this race with endurance. And it's my sincere prayer this morning, and it's my hope that you would continue to live and walk by faith in Jesus Christ. That's my sincere hope, is that for everyone who is a believer that you would persist by faith, that you would endure. The author of Hebrews is going to give them uh, five clear points, five clear ways that they can endure and persist. My senior year of high school, I had just become a believer the year before, and I had a good start, like I described for you earlier. I had started fast. I had, I had changed. My life had, had become different. People had noticed that there was something unique and different about me. I had lived a very rebellious an immoral life before, and then I got saved in this uh, radical conversion way where a stranger knocked on my door and asked me if I would die tonight if I know I'd go to heaven. I didn't. I gave my life to Jesus, and, and I had prayed that if God was real, that he would let me know. And this was his answer. And the next day, a guy showed up at my door and led me to faith in Jesus, and, and it was the answer to my prayer. And so I, I began the Christian life from a very atheistic and moral background, and read the Bible cover to cover, and fasted, and, and began to evangelize and witness, and I had this immediate quick start. I got involved in a great church. I was baptized at Trinity Baptist Church in Norman, Oklahoma. And and the youth minister there, Steve Bushy, had helped disciple me through this uh, first year. But something happened uh, about a year, uh, maybe a year and two months after that conversion. I began to slow down. And I began to struggle. And this youth minister, Steve Bushy, saw that. And one night after uh, youth ministry and after the group, Steve's last night actually, at this church... Uh, He was moving on and we had a a celebration for his ministry there. And afterward, after he had said all his goodbyes and after he had uh, addressed the crowd and and, uh, and after we were eating and everything, Steve came up to me and he grabbed me by the shoulders and he said, you keep going. You keep going. Uh, You keep walking with Jesus. And that is a summation of this passage. If I could awkwardly walk around the room and shake you by the shoulders this morning... I would. I would walk around and say, you keep going. You endure by faith. You walk with Jesus. Don't give up, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling with. So let's look back at our text. Uh, In this passage, the author says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight And the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted so this morning I want to give you these few reasons on how and why you should endure in the Christian faith. He starts the passage with therefore, and it's important to look at context. And in the immediate context, you remember from Hebrews 11, he lists 16 Old Testament saints who walked by faith. Uh, saints who persisted through trials and difficulties, who, who had a promise from God and had a blessing of God, but didn't quite experience Um, all that God had promised them. They were waiting for it. They were looking for a city and they were waiting for it. And so they persisted by faith. By faith is the key thing, uh, the key way in which we are to endure. It's not gritted out self-effort and determination. It is by faith. It is being carried by God. It is by faith. Colossians 2, 6 through 7 says, Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ? You received him by faith. And so the encouragement is to persist by faith, to continue by faith, and to endure by faith. You have these examples, these 16 saints from chapter 11. And so the goal is to walk by faith. And I'm not going to rehash uh, the sermon I preached before Christmas, but I do want to hit on it because faith sometimes seems uh, like a mystery to us. But in reality, faith is something that all of us demonstrate on a regular basis. You demonstrated faith when you got in your car, and you turned that key in full faith that the ignition would spark, and that the engine would start, and that you would be able to drive here. Some of you left with just a few minutes to spare, and you made it, because you had faith, right? You had faith that you wouldn't hit ice, or that you wouldn't get into a wreck, and you got here just fine, hopefully. Hopefully. Uh, But you demonstrate faith all the time. Faith is not this mysterious thing. It is something that you exhibit every day. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a substance that you have to work up to get more of or less of. Jesus said that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is very small, uh, then you have enough faith. Faith is not something you have to work up. Faith is not a power that you possess so that you could create a different reality for yourself. Some people see faith as the fulfillment uh, or the mechanism that will fulfill all their dreams. Listen, if Abel had faith that could change his future, do you think he would have uh, allowed Cain to take him out in the field, right? Faith is not something by which you you are able to, uh, some power that you possess that you can change all of your circumstances and make all your, your dreams come true. Faith is not a magical formula by which you get what you want. Uh, Faith is not something that you have to work up emotionally or intellectually or physically. And faith is not an acknowledgement of the facts. Faith is a God-given ability to trust the future that God has promised you. It's an expression of trust and it's the reception of a gift. That's a sermon I preached a few weeks ago. But I wanted to encourage you that uh, of what those things faith is and what faith isn't so that you'll know how to endure by faith. So let's let's get into what the author prescribes. He gives them these five ways that they can endure. He knows about their trials. He knows about their persecutions. He knows they are experiencing a real temptation to walk away from the faith. So he gives them really five key things to help them. The first thing is this. He says you are surrounded ...by a great cloud of witnesses. Number one, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The word witnesses is the Greek word martyria. And what does martyria sound like to you? It sounds like martyr. Yeah, very good. You all. I heard many of you say it sounds like martyr. By the time 250 rolled around when Origen wrote an exhortation on martyrdom, there was no need to explain this word martyria. But the word martyria did not mean to die for your faith. It wasn't the same until Christians started to witness and then to have to die for their faith. And it became synonymous with giving your life for your faith after you give a public proclamation of faith in Jesus. So it was a witness. The word means witness. Martyria means a witness. It means somebody who stands in court and says, "Uh, I solemnly swear to tell the truth. And and they would give this public verbal witness. And as Christians did that, the emperor or the judge or whoever would be in these uh, trials would say, do you believe uh, in this King Jesus? And as they would say, yes, I believe Uh, Their life would be taken from them, whether uh, in the Colosseum or whether Nero, who would put them up on lampposts and burn them for light uh, in, the, in the midst of the city or whether they were, uh, as, as Hebrews 11 described, they would be, be go about destitute and have their possessions taken from them or, or be clothed in sheepskins and, and who knows what other um, interesting forms of torture that was put upon them. But but in all those ways, they became witnesses who also died for their faith. This is what it means, that these are witnesses who said, I have faith and I believe in Jesus and I've given my life to Jesus and so we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Interesting word, cloud. Uh, You won't find it in scripture used in this way, but in classical literature you will. Homer describes uh, a cloud of foot soldiers or a cloud of horses. Uh, In other writings of antiquity, it's a classical literature phrase that describes the density, the thickness. Uh, You can't go far um, without uh, experiencing a witness. There is a dense cloud of witnesses that you can point to who have walked by faith, who have endured by faith. You don't have to look long and you don't have to look hard to find people. Listen, in all those races we did, sometimes it would just I would just need to see somebody. <laughs> I can remember in Norman, in this 5K, one of my first 5Ks, going back to my hometown and in the 5th uh, in the fifth kilometer, in the last mile, in the last few hundred yards, I passed a 90-year-old man. And I thought, this guy has been whooping me this whole race. <laughs> this guy's been killing me this whole time. And and then I got past... Uh, by by another elderly person. I'm a 25-year-old guy. This was, just, this, was this shameful thing, but, but what it did for me was seeing an example, seeing somebody who was persisting, seeing somebody who was enduring, it lit a fire in me in some ways. I see Hans over there. Hans and I did a race a few years ago, and I was out of shape, and I think he was out of shape, and we were in Doylestown, and he was not going to let me beat him. <laughs> there was something about that competition of being surrounded by somebody <laughs> who's doing it with you, who's enduring with you, who you can see do it with you, that, that does something for you in your faith. And, and the author here is saying that you are surrounded by people who have done this. They've endured by faith. They have walked by faith. They have suffered in faith. They have struggled in faith. Now, for years, I had this kind of American, arrogant kind of view that, that, that these were spectators and that we're in some sort of an arena and that all around us, these saints are just watching us. I don't know if you had that idea, but, but the more I read, and the more I meditate on this passage and prayed over it and thought about it and read other commentaries about it, the idea is not that they're spectators watching us. Oh, that's kind of good, right? You get this creepy vibe of uh, a million dead saints that are just kind of hanging around watching you. They aren't omnipresent. Right, so they're not everywhere at once watching us. They're, they're in the presence of God, and I'm pretty sure that their focus is on Him. <laughs> they're enamored with who God is. So what does it mean to be surrounded by them? I think the word cloud gives us an idea is that we don't have to um, look far, that all around us are examples of people who have endured trials and difficulties and struggles, and you don't have to look far. If you're struggling and you need a good example you don't have to look very far. They're all over scripture. And they're all around you. They're in this room. People who have struggled and have endured difficult times, and so we're surrounded by them. And that's encouragement. It helps you to realize that you're not alone, that others have gone before you. F.F. F. Bruce says it this way, it's not so much they who look at us as much as it is that we look to them for encouragement. And so the first way that you endure is you look around you and see those See those great examples of those who are enduring by faith. The second thing he says this uh, is to lay aside every weight. In verse 1 he says, let us also lay aside every weight. If you were to go out for a run, if you were to go and exercise, uh, the last thing you would want to do if you were... keeping endurance in mind, is to put lots of things on, to put lots of weight on. And and it's, it's not specific about what those weights are. They could be terrible things. Not sin, because that's the third point, but uh, the second point is to lay aside the things that hinder you, the weights that slow you down. They don't have to necessarily be bad things. They can just be weights. They can just be things that slow you down and sap your strength. And so the key question for this is, What distracts you? What takes your strength? What takes your energy that keeps you from enduring and focusing on Jesus? I have a terrible habit uh, of picking up new hobbies uh, just out of nowhere. I'll, I'll be interested in something and I'll pursue it for a time and... It's bad now, but it was way worse in my 20s. I would drive by a fencing parlor, and I would say, I'm going to take up fencing. And I would walk in, and I would take six lessons and buy a bunch of gear, uh, or I would... Uh, I taught kayak at a summer camp, and so I thought I'm going to go buy a kayak, and I'm just going to start kayaking. And I, there were dozens of these little pursuits that I would do, and I won't spare you from all of them. But but one of them, this kayaking issue, uh, I just felt a little bit of conviction. I felt the Lord saying, "I don't I don't want you to give yourself to this. I don't want you to to give yourself to this." And I and so I would dabble. I would put it on the shelf for a while, and I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't pursue. But then after a while, I would get online and I would start to search. Uh, class 5 rapids, right? Because you can't just go kayaking anywhere, so I would go and look in all these different places and exotic places to go, and and then the Lord would convict me, and this would go on for 6 or 8 months until finally, after enough time, I just would ease into these things. And we took a trip uh, to Florida, and we were in a kayak, and Everybody on our tour group was like, "Oh, Gibb, I heard you used to teach this. Maybe you can give us some pointers." And I was I was kind of arrogant about it, and so I would I started to go and I would cruise through this little cypress stumps and along this sort of path in this uh, river area, and 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 as I did, uh, I. I, I don't know how it happened, but I shifted my weight and I tumped the kayak and I just thought there were alligators everywhere. I, I got to get out of this kayak. And, and so I, I swam over to this little stump and I'm dragging my kayak that's now full of water and, and I'm embarrassed and ashamed. I let my backpack fall in the water. I let the whole group go on and I just said, I'll be okay. And I had a bottle of water and I'm just one bottle at a time emptying this kayak just knowing that some croc was going to like... <laughs> Rip my leg off or something, and I was so humiliated and I was so embarrassed. And and when I got out to uh, buoyant again and I got out and caught up with the group, I just kind of got alone and said, "Lord, that was humiliating, and, and I'm I'm really embarrassed that that happened." And and I I just felt Him saying really clearly that the Lord disciplines those He loves, and that this was just a little bit of discipline, <laughs> which is what we're going to get into next week, but. But he said to this really clearly to me. The passion and the desire that you have expended on this area of kayaking, I've reserved for myself. The desire, not a bad desire, not an impure desire, not an unholy desire, not a sinful desire, a good thing, a hobby, not bad, but but I know you, Gibson, (laughs) and I know that you would give yourself wholeheartedly to these little endeavors, and that's what I have reserved for myself. And it was a weight. It was something that kept me from pursuing Christ with wholehearted abandon and passion. Maybe there's an area of your life that's like a weight that you're trying to endure, but this one thing saps you, it sucks all the strength out of you, and it keeps you from really trimming down and pursuing Jesus with reckless abandon and full-hearted devotion is there something in your life that is a weight? The author says if you're going to endure, you have to lay that aside and endure in Christ. The third thing he says is a different category altogether. The third thing is to lay aside the sin that clings so closely. You know, there's another thing that will keep you uh, from enduring. It, it's, it's not keeping your eyes off the crowd and the cloud of witnesses. It's not, it's not just laying aside weights, but it's also uh, laying aside the sin that clings so closely. I love that phrase, it's sin that clings to us. Have you ever taken a pair of pants out of the dryer and you move around a little bit, and the more you move around, they, they just start to cling, and maybe you have a sock stuck to your sweater, uh, or maybe you've experienced that. This sort of clingingness is the sin that he's describing that clings so closely. And I don't have to name that sin. You know what sin I'm talking about because it's, it, it clings so closely. I, I don't know what sin I'm talking about for you. You know what sin clings so closely to you. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's just an independent spirit that says, I got this. I don't need help. I can do this. I don't need help from anybody. And it's a self sufficient, sort of American, I can do it myself sort of feeling. Maybe your sin is anger. Maybe you don't have to go very far to tap into rage and anger. Uh, Maybe something happens and and your fuse is just that quick and, and you'll fly off the handle. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe you've been wronged in your past and, and you're clinging to unforgiveness and bitterness and rage and anger. Maybe for you it's gossip. You just can't help but talk about people. There are basically three levels of conversation that if you're going to talk, the highest realm of conversation that you can have is about ideals. Uh, the second level is about uh, events and things like that. And the lowest level, the easiest level, is is just to begin talking about people. And maybe, maybe for you, gossip is an area where you're continually tearing people apart so that you feel better about yourself. And this is an area of sin. Maybe for you, the area is slander or impurity, sexual impurity, or, or impure thoughts. Maybe it's hatred or jealousy. I don't know what sin it is, but there is a sin that clings closely to you, and you don't have to think very long and hard to identify and put your finger on that. But it's the one that keeps you from enduring. The more you sin, uh, the less willing you are to spend time with the Lord. The more you sin, the less time you're willing to spend in the Word. And the, the opposite is true. The more you spend time in the Word, the less those sins have power over you. Sin can sideline you. Sin will keep you from God. Sin will keep you from the word, but, but in Jesus' name, you're not a slave to fear and to sin. You've been set free from those things. And so you can have victory in Jesus' name. You can have power over temptation to say no. There is an ability that the Holy Spirit gives you. His The, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave is available to you to give you victory over ongoing sin. You have that power available to you. See Romans 6 through 8. The fourth thing that we are to do, the fourth thing that we are to do is to run with endurance the race. Now, he gives us this great metaphor of the Christian life. And all throughout scripture, you can think of other um, descriptors of the Christian life, right? Jesus used agrarian terms. He would say the kingdom of God is like a farmer who went out to sow seed. Uh, and, and so he would use those kind of language. He would use shepherding language. We find in, in Paul, especially, war-type language. Uh, I have all these examples of different war language, but, but you know some of them, Ephesians 6, First uh, Peter 2.11, eleven. First Timothy wage the good warfare. Second Corinthians, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We find all these different language um, ways in which we can describe the, the thing that we're getting into. But running is, is the metaphor that this author chooses. And running, how many of you are runners? Just raise your hand. How many runners do we have in the room? We have a, a very low number of runners. You need to get yourself out there, and you need to go run. All right. Wait till it, uh, it's not snowy, because snow is not a good thing to run on. So we have this race language, and this race language is, is wonderful. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I finished the race. One of my favorite passages, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but run in such a way that you will obtain the prize. Uh, The author uses this race language to describe the Christian life. And there's something about running, especially in that Part of the world, especially at that time where the Isthmian Games took place in Corinth and the the marathon games and, and all of those things, there was long distance running and it was important in their culture. And so this wouldn't have been lost on them to hear the word endure as you run the race. What does it mean to endure? To endure is to suffer patiently. To endure is to suffer patiently. Do you feel like you're suffering? Are you going through a trial? Are you experiencing temptation? Are you struggling with the temptation to go backward? No one says, I'm suffering, bring on more, (laughs) right? All of us have uh, something within us that says, this hurts, I want out. (laughs) But to endure is to suffer patiently, to remain and to last it's the capacity of something or someone to last or to withstand, wear, and tear. And we get from this these great synonyms like fortitude, right? You don't know, hear many people talk about fortitude or tolerance or durability or longevity or stability. But these are all these great words that describe uh, how you are to walk. And someday when somebody stands at your funeral and they stand up and they have words to say about you, I hope that they'll say things like that. Fortitude. This was, a, this was a, a man who endured. This was a woman who continued, who persisted, who followed close after Jesus and persisted. The fifth way in which we are to endure and the final way is that we're to look to Jesus and to consider Him. You see, we have in Jesus one who, who persisted all the way. See, everybody else who ever walked before ha- has endured temptation, but not the fullest level of temptation. Everyone else has endured and, and, and struggled through a persecution or a trial or difficulty, but no one has gone all the way through to fully giving their life without sin other than Jesus. And he did it so well, and he persisted so well, and he endured through the most amount of temptation and the most amount of difficulty and the the most extreme. No one will ever suffer as much as Jesus. There's not probably a person in the room who has um, faced the prospect of being um, absolutely sinless and holy and, and eternally connected to the Father and that the prospect of losing that intimate relationship with the Father endured to the point of dropping blood, uh, sweat blood, before he faced the cross. No one has been able to say, I have finished, to tell us that it is done, it's paid for, I've, I've finished. And, and he gave his life. And so, Jesus, being the example of endurance, now I'm not saying that his death on the cross was an example. He died as a substitute for our atonement. I am saying that his example of endurance, you won't find a greater one. And so as you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, you find in that an ability to endure. Who best to shepherd you and guide you through difficulty? Is it not the King of Kings? And the Lord of Lords who condescends among us and and walks with you and comes to you and says, we can do this. I can strengthen you. I can help you as you persist and focus on me. Nobody did it better than Jesus. And so as you consider him, as you think deeply, as you meditate, as you dwell upon Jesus' life and his words and his ministry, as you keep your eyes on Christ, it, it propels you forward one step more in your endurance by faith. Like I close with this story. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Cliff Young, uh, but Cliff Young was an Australian potato farmer. Uh, And in 1983, at the age of 61, he showed up at a race from Sydney to Melbourne, uh, roughly from Washington, D.C. to Boston, a 450-mile race. Uh, run. And in this race, this 61-year-old potato farmer showed up in boots and overalls, and everybody laughed at him. Uh, and And as the race started, all these highly tuned, experienced runners took off. They had very little on them. They were ready to race. They had a team behind them that would give them fuel and drinks and everything. And, and on this 430-mile Um, race that they were about to endure, Cliff Young started with what has been called the Cliff Young Shuffle. It was like a lumbering, I'm not going to demonstrate it for you, but it it was kind of like a a slow gallop. I mean, he was just kind of a one foot after the other. He averaged four miles per hour. And he did this, and he was incredibly far behind after the first day. But as the other racers... uh, ran this first day for 18 hours. They began to set up their tents, and they began to sleep, and they began to pack up for a six-hour rest before they resumed. Somewhere in the night, Cliff passed him in his lumbering four-mile-per-hour overalls and boots, and he just continued to gallop. And the racers, the next day woke up, and many of them passed him and were surprised, how did this guy get ahead of me? Uh, And and as they got to the second night and the third night, uh, this guy, Cliff, never slept. He just kept going. He just kept galloping. He just kept lumbering. Uh, The story that's said about him uh, is that while everyone else ran for 18 hours and slept for six, Cliff never stopped running He ended up running for five and a half days straight. He smashed the competition and he broke the course record by hours and hours. And when everybody interviewed this guy, um, this potato farmer, he said, I grew up poor on 2,000 acres and we had 2,000 sheep. And when a storm came, and i had to go chase the sheep we didn't we couldn't afford horses and we couldn't afford cars and four-wheel drive so i just had to run and he said i would chase sheep for 3 days straight and i knew that this race would just be a couple of days more and so i just thought i can do it and so this old farmer kept running and said and when they said how did you do it he said i just imagined there was a storm coming in and it kept me running with endurance it's a great story But for us, it's a great story about running with endurance. It's about putting one foot in front of the other by faith, persisting in Jesus and running your race well. It's my prayer for every one of you that if I have the fortune of doing your funeral, if I have the fortune of telling your loved ones and your children and those around, it's my hope that I'll be able to say he persisted to the end by faith. She loved Jesus till the last breath and was ushered into his kingdom. This is what the author of Hebrews wants, is for you to persist and endure by faith. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incredible example of endurance. We thank you for your incredible example of struggling, of suffering, of enduring, of persisting with your eyes on the Father and the mission before you to redeem mankind. Would you grant us... Those in the room, those hearing my voice who, uh, though they are experiencing a difficult time, though they are tempted to fall away from you, though they may be tempted to give up and give in to temptation and to walk away, would you grant them the grace and strength needed to persist and endure by faith? And Lord Jesus, would you give us the strength that by the end of our days we can say, I have fought the good fight I have finished the race and there is in store for me the crown which you have set aside for me. Would you allow us to finish well? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.